Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We sold the business and left with more money than we ever imagined. I thought at the time I was going to be set for life. I'm not going to have any more problems. It's fair to say from then life started to fall apart pretty rapidly. That's entrepreneur Mark Maloney and this is episode 176 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is my show. I'm here every week, except for last week, which I'll tell you about. Uh, This is episode 176 with Australian business giant Mark Maloney. He is a former investment banker. He's a CEO. He's an investor. He's a fascinating human being, and I can't wait to share his story with you. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thanks to everybody that supports the show on Patreon. If you listen to the show regularly and this show makes a difference to your week, please consider putting uh, $5 a month towards helping me pay my production coordinator, Haley and my audio producer, Andy, to help get this show to you. In return, uh, you'll get a warm feeling of gratitude and fantasticness in your tummy and exclusive episodes that only you get to hear, uh, which are available only to people that support the show at patreon.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. Podcasts are free to listen to. They're not free to make. I'm not reading any ads or anything on the show at the moment. So to make sure that I can make the show, your contribution does make all of the difference. And I'm very, very grateful to the people that do support the show. Thanks to all the great Podsy pics that came in through this week, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E. That is a picture taken with your phone of what you're looking at as you listen at this very moment. Pick out your phone out of your pocket, open up your camera app, snap off a shot of whatever you're looking at, tag me on Instagram, or Snapchat, or email me, email at gmail.com. It's a, it's a really great way for me to get to know you in return as you get to know me. And uh, occasionally I, I do share some of the photos and it helps everybody that listen get to know everybody else, which is kind of nice, you know. Uh, big thanks to Will, who sent a great 
Podsy pick from his bus trip across Cuba this week. Uh, thanks, Georgie, who sent a great video after her run, and Tim, who sent a fantastic video in after listening to the Michael Ware episode, uh, episode 175. Also, thanks to Mel, who is in Kona in Hawaii right now, competing in the Epic Five Challenge. That's five Ironman, sorry, five uh, Hawaiian Ironman distance Ironmans on five consecutive days on five consecutive Hawaiian islands. It is a monster, monster, monster challenge. And Mel is the first Australian woman to ever, ever qualify. So good for you, Mel. Uh, we're all, well, I'm thinking of you. Hope it, go, hope it goes well. Um, so last week, I did make a show. And thank you so much for your patience uh, for me not getting a show out last Monday. It was Easter weekend in Australia, which means in Australia, we get the Friday, the Sunday, and the Monday off as public holidays. And uh, turned out that that coincided perfectly with the time when we needed to move my mum out of her house and into somewhere where she could get a little more care. Now, if that hasn't happened to you yet, uh, it probably will happen. If you've already done it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you don't really have a lot of time. It's like, oh, we better get this done and we better get it done now. And uh, it was all hands on deck. I'm one of four brothers, so all of us were there in Brisbane, which was nice. We all, we all managed to get in there. And uh, even better, so there was four brothers, one wife, one fiance, one husband. And so what would happen is, is any one of us boys would pick up, oh, this, you remember this book? This book was while we used to read it. To put it down. That's not coming back to our house. So we managed to keep everything kind of on the lid and we all went, walked away with just a small little box of mementos um, from mum's place. But uh, we found some, some wild things in there, um, like this collection of sun hats, all right, about nine stacked on top of each other. Uh, like, I don't know, like plastic cups at a barbecue. She must have just gone to this, the chemist or something and go, oh, sun hats, I need one of them. I'll just grab a sun hat. Pop a sun hat on there for me with your Gladys. Boom. Extra seven bucks. Got her sun hat. Goes back next week. Oh, that's right, sun hats. I need a sun hat. Anyway, there's a stack of pretty much identical brand, different color sun hats. Um, that was interesting. Found all the books that she used to read us as kids. That was nice. We've got to put them all in the do donation bin somewhere. So if you're in, if you're in Brisbane and you see a dog-eared version of the Very Hungry Caterpillar, you can be sure that it used to send a young Andrew off to sleep <laughs> about 40 years ago. Um, and for some reason we found shotgun shells at my mum's house. I'm pretty sure it was from, cause she used to live with a friend of hers. I think it was his. Um, but yeah, oxidizing shotgun shells lying around mum's house. Pretty weird but uh, we managed to get them disposed of well. But as mum does move into this next phase of, of her life, this new phase of her life where she can get a little more care, um, it's bringing up some feelings, heaven forbid, some interesting feelings. And I'm kind of finding it a bit hard to feel anything at all about it because um, I spoke with my shrink about it this week and she said that I'm stuck in a fight, flight or freeze state around it. So I'm kind of shut off from all emotion around that. So I'm very pragmatic and very practical when it comes to dealing anything, dealing with anything around the whole situation. But that energy comes out of me uh, in other ways. And um, I've been getting cranky elsewhere. And it was actually Audrey that identified it. She's like, you're just cranky and irritable because this is going on. Like I was cranky and irritable about some stupid random shit that had nothing to do with anything. But Audrey's looking at me like, you're excessively cranky and irritable about this particular thing that should be really, you know, in inconspicuous. Why are you so upset? Are you upset about your mum, but you upset that you can't get upset about it? Yes, I am. <laughs> She's very intuitive, Audrey. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to get through that. Um, but like I said, if you haven't been through it yet, you will go through it. 
if you are going through it, I know what you're feeling like. If you have gone through it, um, good for you. I hope everything's okay. I hope it turned out all right for you. But you know, it's part of part of life. We are gonna, we all going to grow old. We all grow old. Um, and that's where my mum is right now. I'm recording this on a Saturday night uh, before the Logies, which are the Australian TV Awards. If you're in the States, they're the Emmys. If you're in the UK, they're the BAFTAs. Uh, I don't know what they are in Canada or Europe. But it's the awards night where everyone turns up on a red carpet and pats each other on the back for being the best person at this thing um i've been about 10 times tomorrow night will be my 11th time of the logies i can remember three of them fairly clearly because i used to drink and by drink i used to try to empty the crown casino of all alcohol uh when i first got invited i was still only at channel v back then and i had been approached about doing australian idol but it hadn't come out yet that i was going to do it and only a few people in the room knew um, so I was actually quite excited about going because I was thinking, oh, well, Channel 10 people, like even the Channel V people didn't know that I was doing it at that stage. Um, but it's, it's an amazing night because you end up, you're sitting in this room, which is kind of like a school formal, basically. It's round tables and there's speeches and stuff. But you're with all the people that you grew up with. You're with the play school presenters, like the kids TV presenters who are, you know, veterans and have been there forever. And, you know, you're with all the mums and dads from all the soap operas. So they're kind of like your proxy mum and dad. Everyone that you consider close to you in that strange TV way, they're all in the room. And it's it's really interesting. And the and the booze is free. And um, when I first showed up, I think I necked about, I was so scared, I, I necked about four Crown Lagers, uh, two bottles of red, and, and then I went to the after party. But I was still at Channel V back then. So I was like, yeah, man, rock and roll, woo! Um, but uh, when I got into the Australian Idol years, that involved all sorts of shenanigans, including... Uh, in the boring segments where they uh, do the news and current affairs um, awards and they do the in memoriam, uh, memoriam pieces. Um, I would sneak off upstairs to the, or downstairs, I can't remember. I think it was downstairs to the casino and play blackjack <laughs> like an idiot. Uh, I remember one year I took a, a freshly won Logie. It was the last Logie that Idol ever won before Dancing with the Stars took us out. I took a freshly won Logie with me because... We'd win it, but then I'd have to give it away. Like, I'd give it to the, the boss of the production company. I'd never, ever see it again, never touch it. Um, because, you know, I'm up there accepting the award on behalf of the whole production, so it's not really mine. But I was just an arrogant fuck. So I grabbed it, and then I went from the press room to uh, a place called the Mercury Lounge, which was was a rock and roll venue that existed in the Crown Casino. It's not there anymore. But it was the final night, the closing night of the Mercury Lounge and Jimmy Barnes, Australian rock legend Jimmy Barnes, our Bruce Springsteen, Jimmy Barnes, the working class hero, was shutting it down, closing it off with this incredible set. It was packed to the gills. And I used the Logie uh, as a pretend microphone as I sang along to all the Barnsy hits. And then after that gig, I went to, I, I didn't go to any of the after parties. I had about a million photos with the Logie. I was jumping behind the bar. I was taking photos with everyone. I didn't let my hands off it. And then I went and played poker at the casino downstairs. And I'm sitting there with the Logie on the felt with all my chips. And I was playing poker. And, um, yeah, I didn't go very well because I was quite tired. Once I started and not off at the table, people just took my money. It was fairly easy for them to win off me. Um, but uh, I remember the next morning at the airport, I had it with me. And we were all on the same flight. And the head of the production company, who was a quite a big, imposing man, um, I won't say his name, but he walked up to me and goes, Oi, give me my fucking Logie. There it is. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then we went and did Idol the next night. Oh, did we? 
No, it was May. So we didn't do Idol. I think I did Channel V the next night. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. Once I went right after I'd broken my hand snowboarding overseas. Uh, so I actually don't remember the night at all. I was in a satin suit. I remember that much. But I was off my face on these Canadian painkillers called Percocet, which are hefty to say the least. I washed them down with a couple of beers. Um, so I remember the very first time I, well, I don't remember, but the very first time I ever won a Logie or picked up a Logie, I've never won one myself. I was nominated that year, but I held this Logie in my hand and I, and I said the, the thank you speech, but I don't remember a thing about the night. Um, I'm sure it was good. I hope it was good. Anyway, by now you'll all know what happened last night. I am just going to guess that uh, someone had a great frock. Someone did something kind of naughty. Someone unexpected won. And someone that everyone thought was going to win won. And I won't say anything more. <laughs> I'm going with Matty from The Bachelor. He's our bachelor. I'm going with Matty. He's my date on the red carpet. And then we're basically what we're going to do is we're going to do the red carpet and then not even go inside the awards because we've got to get on a plane at about 7.30, 8 o'clock that night and get back to Sydney quick sticks because we have a very early start the next morning because we're shooting Bachelor. So I won't even be in the awards show. But uh, let's just hope Bondi Rescue wins because Bondi Rescue is recorded on the very software and microphone and preamp that this very podcast is recorded on. So there you go. Logie, hopefully. I know we already won a Logie with this. No, not a different microphone. This preamp won a Logie. Anyway, moving on. Um, let me tell you about my guest today. Mark Maloney is one of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs. Uh, he's from a family of similarly excellently successful business people. His father built many different companies. I think the last count was around 50, but one incredibly successful mining logistics company called The Mac uh, is the one that the family's known for. Mark is successful in his own right. Uh, he worked as an investment banker in London, did incredible work over there and in Australia before heading back to run the logistics company. The mining company is called The Mac. So Mark came back to run that in 2006 and the company floated on the stock exchange in 2007 and basically made their entire family multi, multi-millionaires overnight. I think they all it made a lot of money in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But Mark's story isn't all about the incredible amounts of hard work that he put in and you'll hear how hard he worked enormously enormous hours he worked incredibly incredibly hard and he had giddy amounts of success his story is not about that so much the story is also about having more money than he could possibly spend failed to make him happy and he tried in many different ways but it failed to make him happy. And this story he's kind enough to share on this show, um, ultimately how he found happiness. Mark has since branched out into other industries. He's an investor. He's a he's an entrepreneur. He's starting businesses left and right. Um, the one that you probably know the best is a, is a franchise called Sumo Salad, which I think has about 200 stores by now. Um, Sumo Salad has kept me fed for many a flight across this wide brand land, that's for sure. Um, and I'm really grateful for Mark coming over to, to do this. I mean, the guy's a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. He turned up alone. Um, he's a tall guy. He's well over 6'4". He's a big man. Um, a lovely chap. And he sat down for a really frank and honest conversation over a fresh cup of tea and a nice warm cup of dal. And uh, I couldn't be more grateful to have Mark at my kitchen table. And I'm grateful that you get to hear this now. Thanks for coming around, man. No, that's all right. So how does this work? 
Oh, we just have a chat. Are we on now? Or yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're just on now. Thanks okay. for coming around. No, no, thanks for having me. It's a huge honor. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, man. I'm no. just, I'm just stoked that uh, that you could be here. Yeah. Um, did you grow up in in Sydney? Uh, yeah, I grew up um, in Sydney. I um, out west at a place called uh, George's Hall near Bankstown. Uh-huh. Um, so very different life to living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Um, but, um, yeah, I had a great childhood out there and um, then uh, I went away to school for a couple of years in the country, a place called Lismore up in, in Byron Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, boarding school? Boarding school, yeah. Um, I think they called it the cheapest boarding school in Australia. <laughs> it was a Catholic boys' boarding school Yeah. Uh, for the last uh, couple of years of school and that was an interesting experience. Um, my father had gone there. And um, I had two of his uncles that were priests there. Um, so, and I didn't really want to go, but I was the eldest of four kids and um, I think they needed to get me out of the house. So I resisted it. But once I was there, yeah, it was amazing. Um, you know, I hated it for the first month, but then to step into that freedom and, and um, you know, I don't think I was a real confident child and very shy but it kind of forced me to really I was on my own you had to I had to support yeah. myself forced me to develop that confidence and independence how so old were you when you I was 15 uh, yeah so I would have been terrified yeah 15 to be surrounded by strangers I'm terrified now oh, I, I get the willies just walking around David Jones yeah, well, I, you know, I was a real shy kid, as I said, and lacked a lot of confidence. It was it was terrifying. Um, and um, just spilled water all over the table because I'm, yeah. I'm super clumsy today. I've been dropping stuff left and right. Oh, mate, I'm always clumsy. I don't know what's going on? But I think it's. Um, so what? what so your, your dad went, and so you heard a lot about this place, and it was a bit of a legacy decision. Yeah, I don't know if it was legacy as in, you know, I think in hindsight my dad probably thought and, and, and you know, my mum that they knew it would it was probably the best thing to bring me out of my shell and help yeah. me develop some confidence and resilience and independence. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it just happened that my dad had gone there and I think his uncles were priests there at various times. So, yeah, I don't think there was any particular... Agenda. It just kind of worked out that way. I've got a younger brother. He refused to go there, so yeah. he never went there. Um, so Put up more of a resistance than you did. He did. He was probably stronger than I was. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what I've, – I've never been to boarding school. My youngest brother went – I'm one of four. I'm yeah. number two of four. Yeah. So uh, AA understand what it is to get the eldest out of the house. Yeah. Because it does become – particularly – what's the age gap between you and number two? So I'm um, – there's me, then my sister is three years younger, another sister a year, tw- 20 months younger than her, and then my brother, there's six years between us. Well, there's a – right there, you yeah. know, if you've got a 15-year-old boy living in the same house as a 12-year-old girl, it's like – it's like may as well be 20 years. Yeah, yeah, it's and it a, wasn't a big house, right? So, yeah, um, it was the same with – I think it was one point – my mum had three of the four boys going through puberty at the same time. Oh. Yeah, it was a smelly place. What a shocker. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then there was one by the there's one point, I think when I was about fifteen and a half, I was now the same size as my big brother. Yeah. So the previous size advantage when it came to any uh 
altercations or, you know, physical resolutions to other problems started to become a bit of a problem. And so, uh, yeah, it wasn't long before uh, he he went off to uni. And, uh, yeah, I I understand that. So when you – is it a big school? Is it a – Ah, look, there was – there was about 450 kids there or something. Um, so it's not so, that big. So it wasn't that yeah. that big. Um, it was pretty small and and pretty tight. Um, what was Lismore like in the 80s? Oh, man, it was it was a hole. Um, <laughs> or, or I thought so. Coming from the city, you know, like it, I thought it had nothing to offer me. But, you know, Byron Bay was just down the road and, Byron wasn't Byron back then, very different place, but still beautiful. And, um, you know, we'd escape on, we were let out probably twice a term. So you'd go to, you know, a friend's house that lived nearby and we'd escape to Byron Bay or the Gold Coast and get in trouble um, as 16 or 17 year old boys. But, you know, I go back there today and you kind of, in hindsight, you look back and you go, wow, what an amazing place to um, have gone to school. Yeah. Um, did you notice a difference the first time you, like after that first term, did you notice a difference when you came back and the family has, you know, been moving and growing without you there? Did you feel a bit odd when you came back? Yeah, I did feel a bit odd, but I kind of, you know, slotted back in as I went to university. Um and I lived at home most of through uh, university. Yeah, that was pretty hard because, you you know, in your late teens, early 20s and, um, yeah, it was hard slotting back in. Mm. Was uni ever a, an option of something you weren't going to do or was it always something you were going to do? Oh, man, I was such a such a nerd at school. Um, what are know. we talking, Dungeons and Dragons nerd? Or? No, 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 no. I, like more business and economics, like... The kids at school used to laugh at me. I used to get the uh, financial review delivered to boarding school on a daily basis, you know, when I was 16, 17, 18. Um, You know, you look back and you think, that's insane. How did Uh, you even know that was a thing? How did you even know to be interested in it? Well, I had a very entrepreneurial father um, and um, just before I went to boarding school, I had to do work experience and um, I said... um, I want to. Uh, I think I want to go and do landscape gardening or dolphin trainer or something like that. The classics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> something land- outdoorsy, something with animals. Yeah, it went from being fireman to landscape gardener to dolphin trainer, and um, my father said to me, "He's like, no, 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 you're not doing that. Um, I want you to call this bloke, my mate, who runs this uh, stockbroking firm. Go and work with him for a couple of weeks." And um, it was 87, it was the time Wall Street had come out and all that sort of stuff and, um, you know, I think my ego just naturally clinged to, to the money and the lights and um, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll go and try that out and the, the, the two weeks that I did it was right in the middle of the 87 crash. And, oh, my God, and, so October know, 1987. October 87 and despite all that, it was super exciting and see all these 21-year-olds driving around Sydney pulling up in Bond Street in their Porsches and, you know, uh, all this other stuff. And I thought, that's that's for me. I want to do that. So I then went to, you know, just went head on into loving stock markets and financial markets. And, um, yeah, so AFR um, delivered every day to school and, um, 
head on into economics and business at school and I was never that great at sport so I think it was you know to clutch on to something like that economics and business and really try and dominate Um, so right from the word go it was you know I'm finishing school I'm going to do uh, business at university and and then I'm going to work in a stockbroking firm so you you had it all planned out yeah, they, yeah, it was all planned out. Yeah, so you'd you'd seen these guys. I'm going to assume in pastel shirts, maybe a ponytail. Uh, oh, paisley ties too. Oh, they were yes. great back then. Yeah, <laughs> just just a little bit before the Bugs Bunny tie, but just a little. Yeah, yeah, the paisley <laughs> Bugs Bunny. You might not have done it for them, but the paisley was there in force. Uh, so, did you ask these guys how did you get into it? Is that how the 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 path emerged? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, I think I was just – my father at the time uh, was working in merchant banking, what it was termed back then, so I'd already got a glimpse of it through him. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, as I said, you know, I may have been 15 at the time, but hanging out with these 21, 22-year-old kids that um, seemed to have it all from a materialistic point of view, um, yeah, hugely inf- influential on a 15-year-old boy. And, you know, I think combined with um, Wall Street coming out and how big that movie was. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, look, it was in my blood from growing up with my father. You know, he was always very much into business and then he jumped into a whole lot of um, entrepreneurial adventures and misadventures and, um, you know, so I think it was in the blood as well. Did you ever... Like before you went out to boarding school, did you ever, when you said misadventures, did you ever like nearly have to give up the farm? Like did it ever get close to the? Oh, yeah, like a number of times, maybe three, maybe more. Um, You know, my father came very close to bankruptcy. Um, You know, he probably was bankrupt at some point but managed to um, negotiate himself out of that. So, you know, very much lived the the ups and downs. of um of that as i said he came from a banking merchant banking career and then decided to branch out on his own and i think you know typical entrepreneurial curse he couldn't do one thing he had to be involved in hundreds of different businesses and um uh the 87 crash hit and i think it rocked the market but it wasn't until sort of two three years later where it started to hit a lot of actual businesses and um uh, through that period, probably um, just when I'd come back from boarding school, you know, 1991, my early years of university, um, you know, he went through a pretty bad patch um, of, you know, wiping himself out. And, um, you know, seeing him go through that was, a you know, a, a real experience. What did he tell impact. What did he tell you about, I mean, everything's when you're driving your Porsche down, you know, Bond Street uh, when you're 21, things are great, but... When you've got four kids uh, to feed and things aren't going well, how how do you even like? How does a dad? Hey, kids, got something to tell you at dinner time? Like, does he was he communicative about it? Well, he was to me because I was the oldest, his eldest son, and um, he probably was more to me than maybe even my mother. Although I can't speak for their relationship, but I think he really wanted to protect her. Um, and try and help her avoid as much of the stress and pain as possible. And and the other kids were too young. So it kind of almost felt like I was his confidant. Mm. And, um, yeah, we got a lot. I got a lot of it. And, um, you know, he's an amazing, resilient man and, um, you know, just all for having a go and, you know, 
God, over the last 20, 30 years, I've seen him be knocked down so many times, but he just keeps getting back up, right? Um, So it was, you know, at the time, I guess I didn't understand emotions, know what I was feeling and that sort of stuff. But I think at the time, you know, it had a big emotional impact on me and I've probably only realised that in, in recent years. But, yeah, seeing your father go through those tough times is 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 pretty hard um you know i remember coming down uh one morning and um i was probably busting his balls about something you know being a a 20 year old or late teenager and um you know just see him uh break down in tears you know like I'm, i'm i'm trying to make things happen here and you know i need you to support me you know that was pretty tough and that memory stuck with me does that did that spurn you on to, you know, wanting to a, a, achieve greater things and achieve great things? I think so. I think, you know, I my mother is probably more risk averse and um, uh, probably not as um, uh, you know not a risk taker like my father. And um, I think I probably inherited naturally more of her genes and I think over the years through um, working with him I've moved from this real logical methodical side um, to being more creative and more of a risk taker probably not to the other end of the spectrum where he is but Mm. probably found a nice balance so you know I think his influence has definitely inspired me to get out there and have a go but I think you know, what I've also learned from him is that real creative risk-taking side as well and how to how to manage risk and just, just have a go and accept. What I've learned from him is that he'll do 100 different things and probably expect 90% of them to fail, but the 10% that do work actually, you know, just dwarf the 90% that failed. So it was really understanding the game of probabilities and um, and how you play that. I've heard that described. Uh, I come from a background of uh, being in bands and, and and studying music and stuff like that, and it was described as um, you've got to be prepared to throw out ninety nine songs that you write before you get to the one that works. Yeah, and you've just got to be prepared to go. No, nah, that's not working. Throw it away. Start again. No, nah, that's not working. Throw it away. Start again. And I've, it's interesting. I've had um, you know athletes sit here in this very chair that you're in right now and, and say you know that. Uh, particularly this one particular cyclist comes to mind and she was saying, oh, no, you know, I, I stood on the podium in number one maybe twice, but I've been in a professional race for 15 years. Mm. You know, like you can't possibly expect in that everything's going to be a hit. But to then have the 10% dwarf the other 90 is yeah. pretty good. Yeah. And, you know, what do you define as a hit, right? Because just because something wasn't a a massive financial success doesn't mean that it wasn't a hit. You know, there's so many lessons and um, other things that you can get out of that that sort of flow into the ones that are so-called, you know, financial successes. So, but, yeah, I think, you know, you can apply the game of probabilities in all of your life, right? And, you know, I think it's the way you've got to live. You've got to have options and keep options open. When you did get to uni... Did you suddenly team yourself up with other people that got the AFR delivered every morning? <laughs> Did you find your people? Well, a couple of – boarding school was great and I made some lifelong friendships there and a few of us ended up at uni together and I, and I think they were still taking the piss out of me 
um, when we were at university. Um, but I think I became even more industrious at university. I, I tried to juggle this full-time career with working full-time in a stockbroking firm and, you know, in hindsight it was just all too serious. Um, but, um, yeah, there was lots of like-minded uh, people but I was probably off the spectrum. What do you mean off the spectrum? Of- well, as far as, you know, it should have been, you know, I had my share about drinking and carrying on and, and whatever, but, you know, I probably should have travelled more or taken a sabbatical or something rather than just going straight from school into work and very serious about university. Um, but it is what it was and and maybe that's why in my late 30s and early 40s I probably had this playtime which should have happened in my early 20s. <laughs> So that, that's that's a full-on thing to be doing. A, what you did, business at uni? Business, yeah. yeah. So to try and do a full-time uni degree and do a full-time job, that is a heck of a workload. Yeah, I know. I don't know what was wrong with me. <laughs> did you, did you, I'm guessing you had an understanding boss when you had to skip out for lectures in the middle of the day. Look, I had um, been amazing all through my career and um, – and work life, I've had these amazing bosses and mentors that have just believed in me and been, um, you know, almost like second parents um, and just been very flexible and, and understanding. So, yeah, am- amazing, amazing boss that just, yeah, whatever you can get done, do it and we'll see you soon. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so were you then after university, you've already got the job at the firm, at the stockbroking firm. Yeah. Were you then right after university? You can't go more full-time once you're full-time. Yeah. What was your after-university plan and when did that, when did that form? Um, well, I, you know, I did four years full-time university and um, then I was, <clears throat> you know, again, most people would have taken maybe six or 12 months off and travelled and saw the world and, um, and um, I just threw myself, went... Um, you know, got a promotion at the stockbroking firm, moved in to become a um, a research analyst or equities market analyst, and um, uh, the intensity increased more. And um, you know, is that the one where you're like John Nash in a beautiful mind, just staring at the wall of numbers and just yeah, the it was all about making up numbers and creating. You know, those days spreadsheets were very uh, early in their infancy and trying to forecast profitability for companies and. Um, you know, recommend stocks for institutions to buy and that sort of stuff. So I went into that um, and um, I was living with another mate that went to university and he was working for another firm maybe 10 floors above um, Grosvenor Place where I was in, um, in Sydney. And we started this ridiculous lifestyle where you know, we were living over at Kirribilli and um, we'd get the ferry to work every morning um, Five thirty, six o'clock. Um, you know, be at work six, six thirty. We'd work our asses off all day, finish at eleven o'clock at night, um, and then we'd go to across the road, very famous bar um, called Jackson's on George, um, which you know there was no Ivy or establishment or anything in those days, and um, we'd drink there till three in the morning or whatever, four, and then get up and do it all again. And, <laughs> and that was like we pretty much worked seven days a week. It was ridiculous and insane. Um, but I don't know, I guess we were addicted to the money and the success and, and the ego. And um, Did you end up getting that Porsche? 
No, I never did. <laughs> I never did. You know, like funnily enough, I've never really... I thought once about buying a, a Maserati and um, I think... Um, my wife at the time um, said, don't be such a wanker. <laughs> um, and then um, after my marriage, I had a, um, a girl I was seeing at the time. I said, oh, I think I'm going to get a Maserati. And she said, don't be such a wanker. So, so I thought I'd leave the Maserati behind. So funnily enough, I've never been, yeah, never been into the cars, but um, into other material things. But so I think, you know, just the intensity working a couple of years after university, I, you know, and then I started to blow up, you know, I think the drinking and everything caught up and, um, you know, I probably wasn't performing as, as well at work as, as I should have and letting a few people down. Um, and uh, then out of the blue, um, this job offer came from, from London and um, I don't think I'd ever been anywhere except to maybe... Fiji, and I'd never thought about going overseas, never really had any interest in travel. Um, and I thought, London, yeah, well, that'll be interesting. How old were you? 24. And um, so I had this wonderful opportunity. Um, I'd met this guy um, in a bar in Sydney, um, and um, he was actually uh, running the office, the London office of uh, my mate's firm that I was talking about before. And um, one Friday night, I was, I was having my 24th birthday party in a pub in the city with friends. Um, uh, another guy came down and said, uh, David Garrard, who's head of the London office, um, wants to have a chat to you. There's a job going. Um, can you come up and do a, a video conference or something with him now? And I said, well, it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm pissed. Um, but sure, I'll come up for 20 minutes and leave my party. So, so let me do the time. That's what, 10 in the morning or 12 noon, depending on the time difference? Something like that yeah. in London. And um, Video conference in what, 1995? Yeah, yeah it was very early that video. Like, they would have had to have satellite for that. I know, I know. But the, the video conference it didn't work. So we ended up doing it by phone. Okay. And... Um, I had a chat to him and then next thing he called me Saturday at home and he said, I want you to come to London. I'm like, shit. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll come for three years. And so I went out and saw my parents and I said, I'm going to London. And they're like, what? Right. And I resigned on Monday where I was and um, a month's time I was living in London. That is what, what I find, what is interesting about that, is we often hear uh, the power of, of networks but so underestimated is the power of loose connections versus the power of, you know, the, the people that you know quite intimately, like this mate of yours that you were living with. Yeah. It was someone who happened to be in town on a night that you met randomly yeah. and he would have told someone else, you know, so already we're now two removed Yeah. and it's, that's the guy that sent someone else down to get you from the bar. Yeah. You know, that it was... I know a guy. Okay, great. And that's how it happens. Yeah. You know, that we don't live in this world of, uh, you know, you answer an ad in the paper and then you apply online and you go to monster.com or you go to LinkedIn and you find a job that way. It's, it's not so much that. It's, it's, I was, in my career at least, it's not, it's not only what you know, it's, it's who knows what you know. 
Yeah. And and having that ability, to, there must have been something about you in that bar that night when you first met that guy from London. Yeah. Like, this kid's got it. Yeah. Well, no, he did say that. He said you left a strong impression on me. <laughs> so, you know, I must have been sober at the time. Um, <laughs> you left a strong impression on me and um, it worked. And um, so I went to London and, again, he was another great boss and, um you know, uh, still very much in my life uh, today, very close friend and mentor. So That's great. Um, it was great. So, first, so your first time overseas, were you just like wide-eyed, you know, with you and the Crocodile Dundee looking oh, up at the sky? Oh, man, yeah. Like it was like that. I remember flying into London 5.30 that morning, I think we landed. And, it, you know, it was actually surreal and amazing because we were flying over all the rooftops um, in London landing and um, you're like, oh, man, this is like, where we're from, history, um, everything we've, uh, you know, we've read about, all the books we grew up with. It was, yeah, I mean, it was amazing, amazing and um, such a, a fortunate experience. And um, so I got there and, um, you know, instantly um, just, just, just loved it, like the vibrancy of the city and the activity and um, financial markets were much bigger than what they were uh, in Australia um, and, uh, you know, a pub on every corner and, um, uh, you know, um, different group of girls, the English girls, um, uh, wonderful. And um, so I had a great time. And I think, you know, the first 12 months I put on 20 kilos um, just from all the eating and drinking, the old Heathrow injection. Um, so the first 12 months was pretty fun. Um, but again, also, you know, I was looking after clients in Ireland and Italy and Paris and all over the place. So, yeah, great experience. So you were, you were flying around and, and meeting people. So for, for folks who are outside of the, uh, the, the industry, what, I mean, our, the general outsider's uh, view of what a stockbroker does is the view of the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Lots of men in suits shouting, and yep. people on phones looking yep. at screens, a lot of that going on. But when you say looking after clients, what, 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 does that, what does the job entail? Were you still in analysis or were you still? No, I'd moved out of being an analyst and um, was more in an advisory role. So not actually on the floor, but, you know, sitting at a desk in a trading room and speaking to um, clients like the Bank of Ireland and um, the Bank of Italy and uh, big insurance institutions and... Um, people managing enormous yeah, funds. Yeah, people managing enormous funds, anything from people's, you know, superannuation to insurance management and that and sort of stuff. And you're looking to advise them on, look, you know what, there's this, I don't know, let's say, there's a power company in Costa Rica that's just signed a deal with this particular supplier for coal they're going to have you know much better margins in the next year i reckon you should put this much there that's sort of yeah thing. exactly so advising them on um what companies to buy and right. have in their portfolio and hopefully having their percentage points kick up a few more percentage points than it would if it was just in a regular bank account yeah exactly so they're looking to make a return and you know for that they'd um pay us a commission on what they bought and uh and what they sold and um if you were a good broker, um, you'd get a massive bonus at the end of the year. Were you following your own advice? Were you putting your money somewhere safe? Yeah, I was actually. I was, I was a pretty good stock picker, I think. Yeah? Um, 
you know, I got a few horribly wrong, but yeah, not too bad. Oh, it's good for you. a lot because I mean, a lot of people it was that great line in the at the start of Ocean's Twelve in the second movie when they've just pulled off this massive heist of the first film, like they stole three hundred million dollars from the Bellagio or something, and they're all going around the room saying how much money they got left. They go, oh, I got four hundred thousand left. Oh, I've got this. Oh, I've got that. Brad Pitt's like, I owe I owe negative twenty seven million, and then one of them guys says. I have 112 million. Uh, what, do you think the stock market's some magical thing that no one knows how to use? What the what have you been doing? <laughs> I did okay. I yeah. could have done better, but did okay. Well, mate, you're better than most people. I mean, like, even now, I've got, I've got mates that are in the, the finance industry and, you know, I talk with them and I, and I just wonder, like, how can, you know, just a chump like me possibly compete against banks who are doing thousands of microtransactions over the course of the 10 seconds it takes to initiate and, and, and sell like hundreds of shorting and longing on the, on the transaction as it transfers yeah. you know, from bank to bank, $100 million moving here to there has suddenly made someone 100000 bucks. You know, how can I as a, as a general punter possibly compete with that? So the whole idea of getting into the kind of level of stock picking and stuff that you're talking about, it, it really daunts me. And I, and I wonder, you know, would it be any, even worth me even investigating it? I think so. But I, look, I think it's changed even more dramatically today because the market's so much more competitive now with um, hedge funds, big hedge funds moving the market around a lot quicker, better access to information. So I think even myself, uh, these days I'd struggle and um, it's, you know, it's a full-time job keeping up with it. You're better off to outsource it to the professionals. Yeah, but I did have a mate who lived in New York and he had this, he's like a computer terminal. It looked like it was out of Apollo 13, you know, this like four screens and he would just sit there all day. He had a keyboard that I've never seen before, some sort of uh, Bloomberg device, some sort of proprietary hardware that he would, he just like on the mechanical keyboard, he just hit the click, 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 click. And he's going, no, oh, I just, just made 10 grand, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have some coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you can do that if you're into it, yeah. Yeah, he knew. Yeah. Though, he, could, he was really, he was like Neo in the Matrix. He could see, you know, things moving around. And, but I guess it's also, you know, it's access to information. It's knowing guys like you. It's, it's, it's knowing where to look. It's knowing, you know, what to look for. Yeah. That's a, that's yeah, a, a exactly. large part of it. Yeah. So um, from, from London, did you start, once you start getting into your late 20s, you start getting the idea of like, what, am I just going to keep doing this? Am I going to make something of my own? These, these guys who are running these funds seem to have a pretty good time. Yeah, well, so I was working for JP Morgan at the time. And um, then when I was over there, I had this um, great, uh, and, you know, like life was great at JP Morgan and travelling the world and busy and, um, you know, just, unlimited expense account out all the time, entertaining clients, strip bars, the works, you know, it was just this decadent lifestyle. Um, and then I got this great job offer from uh, Goldman Sachs to go and work for them in London. So I left JP Morgan and went and worked for Goldman's. And, you know, that was a real experience in itself. Um, I think I went through 45 interviews to get the job. They mm. just fly you around. It was everywhere the world to sit in these interviews. It was like, yeah, you had to be anointed um, to get in the door. And Goldman's was a wonderful environment because it was full of um, so many uh, aggressive and intelligent people just, you know, really pushing things uh, to be done. Um, but I guess it was a high ego environment as well. Um, 
But I remember, um, you know, all type A personalities, and I think the stats were something like 90% of the employees at Goldman's were first-born children or something. So there was something really interesting in that. But and I'm going to say they're probably over 6'2 as well. Over? 6'2. Yeah, maybe, yeah. All tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So interesting environment. And, and that was like around the time of the um, internet boom, the first internet boom and... Um, Again, excesses. I remember, you know, they f- flew us down to Monte Carlo, chopped everyone in, and unlimited expense accounts at the casinos and places like that. You know, real different times to to what it is now. Um, so, um, you know, I, I did that for a bit, and then I actually, after four years, went back to J.P. Morgan and had had another stint there. And along the way. I met my uh, wife at the time in London. She was um, Australian and uh, she was working for Merrill Lynch. We were actually competitors, which was which was quite interesting, servicing the same client base. Um, <laughs> and we met and dated and lived together and got married and um, we had our first uh, child, a, a daughter in London. Um, but over time, you know, I just started, you know, my last, 12, 18 months there was a real slog. I was just, I can't do this anymore. Um, I feel like a parrot just telling the same story over and over what again. What changed? Why was it suddenly different? I don't know. I think it just took its toll, you know, living that. You were working ridiculous hours up at 4.35 every night, working late. You're always out entertaining. Um, Being away from the kid? Yeah. Did that play a role? Yeah, I think so. And, and just the excesses, it took its toll. And, and I started to get bored by it. You know, I felt like I was, you know, you're an advisor and you felt. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Like you were sort of playing from the bench. Um, and um, while I'd been there, you know, my father back in Australia had built this wonderful portfolio of businesses Um you know, he had his own sort of entrepreneurial investment group going and uh, he'd been at me for a while, come back and, and work with me and, and join me. And, um, you know, I was like, no, 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 I'm loving London, I'm loving London. And then just one day I said, uh, yeah, I'm ready to come back. We want to come back to Australia. So um, in sort of late 2006, we did that and um, uh, moved back to Australia with a, a wife and a six-month-old daughter and um, joined my father in business. What's it like working for your dad? Um, you know, it was great. It wasn't actually like working for my dad. Um, it was a real kind of partnership approach and, um, and 
you know, just learned so much from him. Um, we had, he had set up a lot of businesses that were, you know, some doing really well and some doing really poorly. And um, he had this one particular business called the uh, the Max Services, which was a mining services company that was doing really well. And um, we decided that we were going to list that on the stock exchange, um, maintain control, but raise some external capital to grow that business. So the deal was he was going to do that and look after that business and I was going to look after all our other businesses and um, about three months into that he sort of came to me and he said we're, we're swapping roles and I said what do you mean and he's like oh, I don't want to be CEO chairman of a listed publicly um, a public company you know having to talk to all these young fund managers and justify myself to them and <laughs> how I'm running my company you do it and I'll go and do the other stuff. I'm like, well, I don't want to do that either. <laughs> and um, he's like, no, no, you're doing it. It'll be good for your CV. <laughs> so after some toing and froing, I said, okay, I'll do it. But I'm only doing it for three years. And um, look, it was the um, it was steepest learning curve ever, right? I think at the time I was maybe 34. Four thirty-five, you know, fresh out of Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, investment banking. Thought I knew everything, and I had no idea um, running this company, especially um, in public. Once you publicly, once you're public, to, there's a lot of rules and regulations. Yeah, yeah. Look, I was pretty. Watch out those expense accounts, mate. Oh no, yeah, there was no <laughs> expense accounts. I was pretty good on the um, the public side and liaising with fund managers and advisors and all that, the external side, because I'd come from that background. It was more the internal dynamics and taking on that leadership role and, and, and managing the company um, internally. And, um, you know, I remember HR, human resources lady at the time, about six months into it, she came to me and she said, um, she's like, Mark, we've got to have a chat. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, you do realise you're not working in an investment bank anymore, don't you? I'm like, yeah, what do you mean? She's like, well, you know, you've got to probably go a bit easier on some of these people. They, they're not getting paid massive dollars and they're not getting paid your million-dollar bonuses. You know, they've got to have a life as well. Um, so there was a big learning curve going from that environment into a more real-world environment and how to to lead people in a different way. Um, but also, you know, when I initially took on the role, everything was great. Um, the world was rosy and maybe six months into that, the GFC really kicked in and um, all of a sudden uh, everything started to fall apart um, and um, had to quickly jump, jump in and change things and shift things quite dramatically. So, you know, not only was it a massive learning curve in doing something completely different, but in such a, a volatile and, and changing environment as well. And when we initially listed the company, um, we saw our wealth go through the roof um, and it was quite surreal um, to, to think that amount of money existed on paper, but very quickly that all evaporated um, before our eyes. When uh, Do you remember the, 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 the days leading up to... What was it? Was it a September in, in 2009? I can't remember the... Like, were you privy to information that things were starting to 
go bad that the subprime mortgage market was starting to you know fall to pieces and that we were the mates of yours in the industry going you may want to watch out for for this and that could you see the storm clouds on the horizon yeah actually did it was interesting because um i still had this strong interest at the time in markets and what was happening um i think it really stood me in good stead and um i could see that um we really needed to shore up our balance sheet and make sure we had our cash position right so I said to the board, because we had an independent board, independent board, I said, we need to raise some capital. And um, they were, um, well, no, we've got enough capital. I said, no, 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 I think we need to shore up the balance sheet, pay off some debt and raise some capital. And so I eventually got them there and um, we lined up uh, Goldman Sachs and um, Audmanette was the firm to, to raise, I think, 50 million bucks for us. And... Um, our stock price at the time was nearly three bucks, and um, and um, so we thought it'd be okay. And we started to get in this process. And just as we we're about to pull the trigger uh, to raise capital, I remember waking up that morning, and um, U.S. markets were down some ridiculous number, like fifteen percent or whatever, and the whole world was was panicking. And um, I thought, oh shit, we're not going to get this done. We've missed it. And um, we came in that morning about six o'clock. And we had the two brokers and banks on the phone and um, uh, one of them, um, uh, friends of mine, Angus and uh, Michael Bassett at Audmanet said, no, no, we think we can get this done, but you're going to have to take a serious discount on your share price. I think, you know, instead of three bucks, you're going to have to do it at 230 or whatever. And so I convinced the board and um, uh, my father agreed Let's get it done. Let's bank the uh, the fifty million and just make sure we go safe into that. And so we got it done. Um, and it was lucky because a month later, um, the world had collapsed even more, and our stock price was like at forty cents. Um, so whilst times were tough and we really had to cut things back in the company, we went into the GFC pretty well um, prepared and um, had you know a good cash buffer to see our way through it. That's but what does it speak not only because not not everyone's raising fifty million bucks from Goldman Sachs, but everyone's calling upon relationships that they've built earlier in their career to help them out at some stage. So it's interesting what that says to maintaining relationships with the people that you meet along the way. Because you said you were able to call some people up that you knew. Yeah, and that's, that's yeah incredibly powerful. powerful. Yeah, you know, um, friends, network. Um, you know, we're, again, we're lucky. You know, I've had so many good people in my life, good businesses, but also loyal, loyal friends, loyal advisors and supporters. Um, yeah, we've been lucky. That company went on to do uh, fairly well, didn't it? It did. You know, like, as I said, price bottomed out. Maybe it was around 40 cents or whatever. And um, then the world started to it, – it was scary going through that, really scary because I thought we were going to lose everything despite – um, balance sheet being the way it was but you know at the time you're just stuck in the thick of it and you just get on with it um, in hindsight you know I know there were lots of sleepless nights um, but you look back and again it's just being resilient and, and getting on with it but the, the world started to improve and um, uh, you know we had a couple of private equity firms that came and offered to, to buy us out when our price was back to a dollar maybe 12 months later and we considered that and we thought no it's too early we love the business we still think 
Um, there's a lot more we can do here. And um, that time I'd really slotted and fitted into the role, loved working with the people, loved all of our business was in the remote mining areas of Queensland and Western Australia. Um, and my brother and my sister were also working in the business and we had a great management team and we all loved spending time in those regions and the people and, um, you know, my father was still very active as chairman of the company, so it was too early. But then another 12 months later, US firm came along and um, they offered us um, a couple of bucks a share and um, we thought, oh, we'll start to think about this because, you know, the mining cycle is not going to last forever and, um, you know, we've seen the wealth evaporate before. Um, we said, but we said no, um, we still think there's more to go and they just kept coming back and um, I remember being in a room with uh, their advisor um, and many people uh, in the financial community or outside will know John Wiley. He's a very famous investment banker. He was advising them and, um, as I said, our price was a couple of bucks at the time. And he said, well, you know, what price will you accept? And um, I said, oh, four bucks. And um, he said, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, do whatever yeah. you want. And he said, um, he said, you're fucking crazy. He said, there's no way you're getting four bucks for this. And, um, you know, within six months they'd paid us four bucks. Um, it was just crazy times. Um, and not only had they paid us four bucks, but they went from offering us their script to full cash. And so it was, it was too good to be true. We were left, um, we sold the business and as a family left with more money than you could we ever imagined. Um, you know, family from... Bankstown, George's Hall, um, very humble uh, beginnings, uh, lots of trials and tribulations along the way, had had this event where, you know, I thought at the time I was going to be set for life. What happens when you wake up that morning and go, oh, no, that's right, There's, my bank account looks like a phone number. <laughs> yeah. What do you, what's it like? Because people dream about that day. People dream about, oh, when I win the lotto, blah, or when this happens, blah, or when I record my single, blah, when I release my app, blah. What's it like when you wake up that morning? Well, you know, I think as, as, as Jim Carrey famously says, I wish more people um, could have uh, the experience of wealth and fame because they understand that that's not where fulfilment is. Um, but initially when you wake up, you live in this false world of this is amazing. Like I'm set up for the rest of my life. I'm not going to have any more problems. It's amazing. Problems that we perceive, problems that we get in our society are always solved by buying something life's just going to be taken care of. No more concerns, no matter what. You speak as if that's not the, <laughs> not the case. <laughs> well, I think it's fair to say from then life started to fall apart pretty rapidly. Really? Yeah. What, I mean, what do, you, what do you do once you, I mean, what would most people do? They'd probably, well, pay off the mortgage, buy mum a house, go on vacation, get the new iPhone, what do you do after that? Well, um, yeah, all of the above. Um, initially, um, the company that bought us asked uh, myself and my brother and my sister um, to hang around um, 
and work for a year. Um, and um, so we decided to do that. And I think within a couple of months I went to them and I said, this isn't working, you know, it's your company, you're free to do what you want with it, but it's very different to how I'll run with it. So why don't we just part ways? And they're like, oh, you'd consider that. I'm like, yeah, just pay me out and we'll part ways. So they paid me another 12 months salary. Um, so, you know, more money. And um, I left. And uh, so then my wife at the time, um, she said, why don't we go and live in the south of France for a couple of months, as you do. He doesn't want to go to Suisse de France. Let's yeah, go. Let's go. And we'd had another daughter. Um, and uh, so my wife and two daughters um, and we had friends and family come and visit at different points, went and lived in the south of France. But very quickly what happened was that we got there and at the time I was so bored and anxious and we were away in the south of France. I couldn't sleep properly um, and I started not sleeping at all and I didn't know what was wrong. Um, but I kind of just had no purpose to my life. There was nothing to do, no reason to get out of bed. Um, and so, you know, we did maybe six weeks or something there and, look, it was it was great to connect with my kids and... Um, and my wife and friends and family, but I think I was still very much living in my head. And um, it was the start of, um, you know, uh, anxiousness and depression and, um, uh, you know, a, a probably a nervous, what could have been described as a nervous breakdown to come later on. And w was it because... As you mentioned, you didn't you, you didn't have a purpose. I mean, previously, you were always, whether it be when you were a kid in the financial review, you know, in your head imagining what you'd do if you had some capital or then when you're at university, you've got this incredibly packed day where you're doing a lecture or being, uh, you know, at the desk all day, all night, and then afterwards working 20-hour days, you're clearly someone who thrives and only feels comfortable when you're occupied mm. to suddenly be unoccupied because all that time you were chasing this thing of once I get this thing, it'll be fine. Mm. Well, then this thing arrives, but it wasn't fine. Mm. That's wild. Man, it was the weirdest thing because um, I, I didn't know what was going on. It took me a long time to work out what was going on and, you know, what's wrong with me? I've got more money than I need, no mortgage, a wife, two beautiful daughters, I'm well, it what's what's wrong um you know i just couldn't work it out but i think what had happened was that um a few things i'd pushed myself through the course of my career in investment banking and broking and then through uh running the mac i had pushed my body and mind so hard from working ridiculous hours probably not eating as well as i should have and, you know, lots of alcohol and excesses along the way. And so I just flogged my body. Um, and then there was the, um, you know, having no purpose, no point to my life, that kicking in as well. 
and uh, I think also just living in my head so much. Um, and so we came back to uh, Australia and, um, you know, it was around the time of my 40th birthday and um, and my father and I and the family, we went back into business. We set up a new investment group and um, things started to not go so well there, a couple of bad investments and um, my father and I uh, disagreeing on investment styles and he was taking some risks that were really starting to to freak me out. Um, and um, so I think me combined with, you know, my body just breaking down from years of abuse, um, not feeling fulfilled or having a purpose or working out what I wanted to do with my life um, and, you know, my attachment to, to money and the ego around that and, and watching my father take some big risks all just culminated in, as I said, what could be described as a, as a breakdown. It started with me, uh, you know, waking up early and not getting back to sleep um, to a period of where I just didn't sleep for nearly two weeks, like not a single oh drop of sleep and um, all the alcohol in the world couldn't get me to sleep. Um, doctors uh, put me on all sorts of tranquilizers. They couldn't get me to sleep. And, um, and then my wife um, said enough's enough got to go and see a specialist and um did and um he said you've got anxiety led situational depression whatever that is um you need to take these particular pills and um and I did and started to sleep um and that yeah then kind of led to a whole lot of other things unfolding and blowing up. So, um, and that was that was probably the real start of, I think, you know, my journey to where I am today. Would have been quite frightening this way that you'd been living your life, having been so astronomically successful for so long, easily 20 years of your life following the same formula has just led you to nothing but blue skies. And then suddenly you get up and you're doing the same thing and, and it's not working anymore. And then everything starts to malfunction it must have been really unsettling man it was so out of control you know like just gives me goosebumps thinking about back to that that period and um you know what what happened was i wasn't having suicidal thoughts but i was concerned that i was going to get to that phase and they say that that kind of breeds those thoughts on its own. Now, I was lucky enough that my wife and family kind of picked it up and uh, intervened early enough, but it kind of got to that point where I was really worried that I was going to have those thoughts. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty frightening and, and freaky and um, I just had in my head that I was never going to sleep again. Um, so it was a real mind game trying to come out of it and I didn't have the skills at the time to understand my mind and what was going on and, um, you know, today, you know, the development of mindfulness and meditation has just accelerated so rapidly in the last few years. Like it's really the only last two, three years where it's really accelerated. I just wasn't aware or had the skill set around any of that back then. Is that what turned the corner for you? 
Yeah, definitely. There are a couple more hurdles to get over first. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, my marriage then unfolded um, and I separated from my wife and, and that led to quite a painful uh, divorce. Um, and, um, and then as any uh, sort of middle-aged 40-year-old male does with a bit of money, you know, you jump into a, a series of... Um, relationships uh but you know again i've been lucky i've had amazing women in my life you know like uh, my ex-wife was amazing and then a string of girlfriends that you know relationships that were just nightmares but beautiful people and and learned so much from them um along the way um but you know again out excesses the drinking and uh you know the carry on um had to go through go through that um but then i think you know the 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 turning point you know a couple of really low moments um where um you know i was in this phase where one weekend um i'd have my kids and one weekend i wouldn't and the weekends i didn't you know i i I would just have this inability to stop, which you may be familiar with. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I certainly know our mutual friend Rich Roll is um, and uh, many others like us where you just keep going. And to be sitting there at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning, like just with the sweats from alcohol and abuse and... Yeah, whatever, pretty low and dark moments. But I needed a lot of those moments before I started to realise that um, this wasn't how I wanted to, to live my life. And, you know, I remember one particular Sunday morning, it was probably five or six in the morning and sitting there in a chair and like, what am I doing with my life? And then, you know, my mother rang me about eight o'clock and I was still drunk. She's like, do you want to come down the road and have breakfast? And I'm like, yeah, okay. And we went down and, um, you know, my father was there and he was busy on his phone and reading his newspaper. But my mother just looked at me and she was in tears and she's like, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing to yourself? And, um, of course, at the time I wasn't ready to hear it. I'm like, you know, what are you talking about? I'm all right. Leave me alone. Um, but, yeah, lots of moments like that, you know. Um, There's a, a, a lot of people talk about, in my particular story, a lot of people talk about uh, having a rock bottom. I, uh, uh, I think the term is I dragged along the bottom for quite some time. <laughs> Occasionally I'd bounce a little higher and get up a little, but it would always come back to just me just being dragged along and um, I remember hearing the, uh, the great phrase, uh, let go or be dragged. And uh, I remember at one point it was just, I just, it just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it again. You know, I just couldn't do it again because I knew how every day was going to end up, no matter what. I knew how every day was going to end up, no matter what. And that was a problem because I no longer had a choice in it. Yeah. It was no longer something that I was doing willingly. It was something that was going to happen whether I liked it or not. Yeah. And that was when I was like, can't do this anymore. I'm officially done. Yeah, <laughs> man, I'm the same. Like uh, some some days, I just refer like refer to myself as you're a dumb animal. How many times do you have to keep going through this? Like by all accounts, 
you're an intelligent man and you can run big organizations but you know but i you know just couldn't control it at that point i still hadn't grasped what was going on inside me and and knew how to i had no idea how to sit with that and deal with it you've mentioned ego a few times did you have to sit down and have a chat with uh yeah, well, you know, like from the sidelines, like lots of friends and um, other people say, wow, you, you and your family are so amazing. You guys are so humble and, you know, you've generated all this wealth yet you still lead a normal life and that was fine from the outside but on the inside that was bullshit. And, you know, I realised that um, I had a massive ego so attached to to money and success and achievement and so attached to 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 women you know so you know i worked out my two weak points um were really money and uh, and women and that's what i needed to work on and i think that stemmed right back to when we were talking about you know as a kid i lacked confidence and self-esteem and and my way out of that started back at school i'm going to succeed in business and economics and you know if i can be a business success and have this money and power then i'm going to be okay and that's where it all began so uh, no one does this alone did and you mentioned that you had great mentors along the way who do you turn to when you're like all right i need i need to find a way out of this well man it's you know i hate to sound like a record but again i was so lucky these amazing people, um, series of people. Um, my ex-wife and I, before we split, um, we were uh, seeing a counsellor, um, a guy called uh, John Aitken, who you may know, who's now got the um, TV show Married at First Sight. Yeah. Um, so I saw John for a while, but that became a bit inconvenient for me because he was at St. Leonard's and, um, and uh, I was living over in the east at that point. But then I ran into um, a guy called uh, Wes Fab who... Wes who runs a snowboarding company? Yeah, Wes, exactly. A, Not anymore, but he used to, yeah. He's a very inspirational guy in my life. I'm fascinated that you mentioned his name. His wife at the time was, was Claire and... Um, our wives went to school together and and Wes and I, um, we ran into each other and we sat down and had a coffee and he and Claire had, had split and we'd never really gotten on or warmed to each other when we used to catch up um, with our wives and, and he was pretty open, we were chatting and he's like, you know what, I never really liked you um, but you're actually okay um, as we started to swap stories. <laughs> he's very and, direct. Yeah, yeah, very direct and, and be honest and... Um, Anyway, he started telling me that um, he had this amazing counsellor that was based four doors down from where I was living in Wallara. And he said, you should go and see him. And um, so I decided to. And um, this guy, like amazing psychotherapist, but really hard and direct and honest. And um, he was just like putting a mirror up in front of me. Um, so he's been a great teacher and, and great inspiration and um, I still see him once a week uh, to this day, probably four years down the track and 
people still say, yeah, you know, you're still in psychotherapy. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, why are you still doing it? You know, surely you've recovered a um, long time ago. I'm like, nah, still still getting lots out of it. Many layers to the onion. Yeah, many <laughs> layers many to the layers. onion. So he's been a great help and a teacher. And, you know, we can talk a bit more about um, him. But um, I also discovered, you know, meditation and mindfulness and um uh, there's a great call, guy called Tom Cronin who has the Stillness Project down in uh, Bondi and I went and did the uh, Ayurvedic uh, meditation course with him and um, being the extreme personality that I that I am from the day I left him every morning, every night for the last four years, um, meditated without missing um, and, you know, did a, a retreat with him in Bali and um, lots of other stuff with him and um, he's become a very close friend. Um, so he's been a, another teacher. Um, and, um, and then I think all these virtual teachers, like I discovered um, Rich Roll through his uh, podcast. Um, I had a, a good mate of mine who was also my PT instructor at the time. Um, he said to me, you know, what do you think about veganism? And um, I said, oh, you've got to be fucking kidding um, and he's like, no, 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 there's, you, I've discovered this guy, Rich Roll. You've got to go and listen to his podcast. And I'm like, no, no, no. But I reckon, you know, within 20 minutes of leaving him, I'd sort of the next 24 hours I'd binge listen to 10 of Rich's podcasts and, um, and then probably for, you know, the next two years, every time I was in the car, every time I went for a run around Centennial Park, Rich and his guests, um, so huge impact um, on my life and, and, and what could be uh, achieved. Um, and then, you know, just general friends and, and family and, you know, again, other virtual teachers, you know, people like Wayne Dyer and um, uh, Eckhart Tolle and, you know, there's such a wealth of information and, and help out. Uh, Somebody I'm working days. with at the moment who's uh, oh, they're, in their, they're in their late 20s and... Um, they're reading The Power of Now for the first time. Oh, wow. And yeah. I was like, you know, it's like when I meet people who have never seen The Wire, it's like I wish I could go back and be you and have never read it before to have those moments again, yeah. those realisation moments when you read that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's extraordinary. Was there a moment that you, uh, I mean, clearly this, the the way out that you've, dis- the way in that you've described is a, is a, a tale that we have heard before, the, the tale of, you know, had more money than, than mm. I could spend in a day and, you know, ran into these problems but the way out has also is also a tale we've heard before and we've heard the tale of you know um meditation and 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 looking after your body and stuff like that as as a way out of these things but i think sometimes so often these things are you know it's a bit oh it's just for instagram yeah, that's my. That's when people ask me if I'm vegan. I say yes, but I have been since before Instagram. Before I was, <laughs> <laughs> since before we, before it was a thing to tell people that you're vegan in the first sentence. Yeah. Um, but what would you say to people about, you know, hopefully folks who are listening, maybe some of them have, but hopefully people haven't reached a bottom that that you'd reached. What would you say to people about? mindfulness mindfulness meditation and what would you say to people about taking control of uh of feeding your brain with with you know different ways of living that you may have been used using well i think the evidence is obvious and it's it's proven um you know like i was with 
Tom Cronin of the Stillness Project yesterday and we were talking about this exact topic and um, he's like everything we need to know has already been written about and it exists and and you don't need to read multiple books, just pick one, they all tell you the same story in, in a different way but... You know, I'm a guy who was living in his head, out of control, um, addicted to money, um, you know, uh, addicted to sex um, and validation from women, validation from money, um, anxiety, depression, um, to now, you know, I think, still living in my head every now and then but much more connected to my heart um sleeping well at night at peace um you know just more creative forces coming through me than i could ever imagine so i think that lifestyle works um and i'm more on my game than i ever have been um you know that lifestyle of meditation, mindfulness, living in the present moment, not worrying about the past or the future, um, really being present with yourself, what you're feeling, present with your kids, present with your business when you're working in it, you know, not drinking if that's a problem for you and if it's not, even not drinking that much, um, living mostly a plant-based diet, um, the full plant diet based diet if you can that lifestyle works um, and I think I'm proven fact and I think there's many other proven facts other people out there have proven it as well but it depends what you want to do with your life like I think if you want to live an extraordinary life which doesn't mean financial success it means um, you know growing as an individual as much as you can in this lifetime and having great impact and serving your kids, your partner and um, other people out there. You know, if you want that growth and the love that flows back from serving and being with others, to me that's real success, then choosing that lifestyle is, I think, um, a great way to live. You mentioned before the feeling of what it was like when you felt there was no purpose in your life and that you f it, it, it might have felt that suddenly everything started to unravel very quickly. How long did it take you to find a purpose? And what is that purpose? Yeah, well, I, I think I found it. <laughs> but it was, a, it, again, it was a process. And um, a lot of people ask me this now and my advice is you can't force it. You've just got to sit with it and let it unfold. Know that you want to find it and you want to go in a direction, but um, you've got to let it unfold. I had to get real clear. I had to go through the process of bringing mindfulness and meditation into my life. I had to go through the process of um, giving up alcohol. For me, giving up alcohol was, uh, I found, to my surprise, not a major issue. Um, and... Um, you know, I just decided I'll give it a month and next thing, all of a sudden, I hadn't had a drink for 12 months and didn't miss it. My life's played out very much still the same, still going out with friends, still going to parties, still having um, a, a good time. 
But what it did for me was I all of a sudden discovered that I had all these feelings and emotions that I'd never sat with before and that I needed to let work their way through for me. And I discovered that I don't like to use the word addiction um, because I just, I don't know why I like it. But I think bonding is a better word. I've heard a lot of people use the word bonding, like we all have to bond with something and some of us choose to to bond with each other. Some of us choose to bond with alcohol. Some of us choose to bond with sex. So for me, um, alcohol was an issue, but okay. I found my major issue was around uh, sex and women. Um, That was kind of my go-to for pulling myself um, out of my body and um, sort of negating anything I was experiencing at the time. So getting rid of alcohol allowed me to realise that and then Becoming, um, realizing that and working through that, I started to really sit within myself. And I remember Slade, who was my psychotherapist, we're talking about before, when I initially started seeing him, I'm like, you know, what do I do with all this? And he's like, just sit with it, just feel it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you say that to me every time I come and see you. Um, just tell me logically how to do that and what, what, what does feeling it and sit with it actually fucking mean I don't understand it and he kind of just laughed at me and he said you get it just sit with it just feel it and then I think um you know back to Eckhart Tolle like the power of now is great but a new earth I'd say would have been one of the most instrumental books in my life and the way he describes the the pain body and um the way you can dissolve the pain body by just sitting with it. I think combination of Slade, combination of Eckhart Tolle, sitting with the pain body and realising it allowed me to really clear myself and clear some of those feelings and emotions that had been there for so long. Um, And so, you know, doing all those things to get clear um, back to my purpose started to 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 flow through and um you know you go i go through the process like every you know you can read on mind body green or rich roll's got a course how to find your purpose and and some of those are good and i did some of those and you sit down and you look back to what you really loved as a child and you know what made you stick out from everyone else why people thought you were weird and that sort of stuff and and you know for me it did always come back to entrepreneurship And, you know, I loved business, I loved entrepreneurship, it was in my blood. And I thought, well, what about business that is actually supporting and investing and helping businesses that are trying to make a difference and and do good? So, you know, the way I, what my purpose is and the way I describe it now is that I've had this wonderful experience in banking and advising people and then running our own businesses and, um, you know, being involved in the establishment and running and success and failure of different businesses. So I've set up this investment group called Intrepic, which is all about investing in entrepreneurs trying to make a difference. And and that investment is just not money. That's time and mentorship and that sort of stuff as well. So so I embarked upon that and um, that's how I see my purpose now, you know, investing and backing um, entrepreneurs like Luke Bayless, who has Sumo Salad and other similar businesses, um, investing in them, money and time, mentorship. 
but also starting to develop a, an education and inspiration piece around that as well in um, helping other entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs um, go down that path. And, you know, my view is is um, forget politics and forget other stuff. None of those really matter or have an impact on the world. They're all at the margin and none of them really make a difference anyway. The, the real way we can make a difference in this world, unfortunately because the world is so commercially orientated at the moment, is through business and that's through creating new businesses that can make a difference or changing the mindset of, of larger businesses. So that's kind of how I see my purpose now. So helping, to distill it a little, would you say that it's, it's helping people, help people but at scale? Yeah, but not necessarily scale. Small businesses that have the potential for scale. Um, you know, I'm in my infancy and in doing this. I'm probably four years into it and, um, you know, the model keeps evolving and I think I've got a pretty clear idea of where I want to take it now and, um, you know, as, as Tony Robbins uh, says, you know, you can't have success without fulfilment and that's what we've just been talking about. Uh, you know, I think I've got a model now that is going to bring me a lot of uh, fulfilment um, and it's, um, you know, small or large but where it's scalable, um, helping those businesses that can make a real difference and have impact. So we, we should I should just round the corner a little bit and try and get us towards uh, towards finishing. Let me ask you this about... What did you think in your 20s, what was it that you thought made you happy? And what about what makes you happy now? Yeah, look, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about it. Money, a big house, um, a holiday house, overseas travel, um, a wife. Um, yeah, all that materialistic stuff. Um, now, um, you know, I've had uh, lots of uh, successes, but, you know, a few failures in business in, in recent years. Um, but, um, you know, my financial position still still good. Um, but none of that actually matters anymore. I think, you know, it's more around, you know, they say you've got to love yourself and it took me a long time to work that out. You've got to love yourself before um, you're good to anyone else and um, I don't think you can be in relationship fully uh, with anyone until you've got a great relationship with yourself. So I think what's important is being mindful of the relationship with yourself and that you actually do really love yourself and, to, and until you can do that, you can't be good to anyone else. Um, you know, it's that partner that you choose to grow with. Um, I think there's periods of life where you need to be on your own to um, to learn to love yourself. But I think for the most part, the real growth comes being in a relationship because it's, you know, as they say, relationships are assignments and um, you need to be with that partner that wants to grow with you and is interested in mutual growth as well, so that's very important. Kids, kids are amazing. Um, you know, they're just the gift that keep on giving. And um, 
you know, as they say, they're not yours. You don't own them. Um, they've just come through you into this world. And I think you have a duty. Um, every generation has a duty to try and do better uh, than the next. Um, and so for me, my two girls are hugely important. And in many ways, they've been great teachers to me as well because, you know, I've found the energy I give them if, if I'm having a shitty day and I'm giving them bad energy, they're fighting amongst themselves and it's coming straight back at me. So I've learned that they're just a direct reflection of the, uh, the energy um, I give them. So my priorities are, you know, uh, myself, my kids you know, the person you're in partnership with. Um, and then you, you, you've got to have purpose to your life and it can't be about the money or success. It has to be. It's, it's become really cliche these days to say, you know, who will you serve? You need to serve someone. But that's, that's a fact, you know. Doing it for the money doesn't work. Um, you have to be doing something. Um, whatever it is you have and everyone has something that is of benefit to society, you know, you've got to be delivering that up uh, to the world and backing yourself and taking a, a risk on that. And then outside of that, and I have to remind myself to do this and um, it's so important, but I've got to keep bringing myself back to it. You've got to have fun, you know, do what you love, um, have fun. I can't thank you enough for this, man. No, I loved it, man. It's been a great chat. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you. All right, man. I'm going to take your photo real quick, okay? Thanks, man, yeah. That was Mark Maloney. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Thanks for being a part of the show, Mark. You're a legend. Thanks to everybody that supports the show already at patreon.com slash osher. If you feel like supporting the show, if this show has made you go, yeah, you know what? That thing brings value to my life. For as little as the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month, you can make sure this show comes to air every week and help me pay my podcast coordinator, my production coordinator, Hayley Van Spanja, and, of course, my audio producer, Andy Ma. So, um... Without further ado, it's uh, 5.30 on a Saturday night. I have to go to work in about two hours. Nah, that's okay. I actually really like what I do, so that's nice. But um, thanks so much for listening. I love you for listening. Have a fantastic, fantastic night. Um, have a great day. Whatever you're doing, make sure you send me a podsy. Hashtag podsy. Tag me as well. Thanks for listening. Until we talk next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.